Hello and welcome to episode 149 of Blockchain Insider. My name is Simon Taylor and I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Kai Sheffield, head of crypto over at Visa. How are you doing, Kai? I am great. Another week in crypto, more rabbit holes to go down. Oh my goodness, are there some rabbit holes. We're trying to summarize a month when months happen in days <laughs> in crypto. So uh, it is our new show. My goodness, it's uh, it's been it's been intense, hasn't it? Um, so I guess you could say that crypto is still booming and isn't slowing down. But let's look at our stories and dive right in. So this week we cover $9.5 billion spent using the Chinese central bank digital currency. Chipper Cash gets a $2 billion valuation with 150 million extension led by FTX. And Goldman Sachs has tapped a digital asset company, digital asset indeed, to build an open platform for tokenized assets. To dig into this, we're also joined by a phenomenal guest. We have Chad Cascarilla, who is the CEO and co-founder of Paxos. How are you doing today, Chad? Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much. What a guy to pick through the news with. Uh, just remind everybody of what Paxos does. Sure. We're a blockchain infrastructure firm. Uh, we enable crypto and blockchain firms to uh, build businesses. Uh, and we power some notable companies like PayPal and Venmo and Revolut and Interactive Brokers as examples. That's a phenomenal elevator pitch. I get the sense you've done that before, sir. Really good to have you on as well for this one, because uh, it feels like the world of institutional finance and the wild west of crypto are really coming together. And there's a whole bunch of uh, examples of that. The first story we're going to cover this week comes from Reuters, and this is apparently 9.5 billion US dollars worth of currency has been spent using China's central bank digital currency. Some 140 million people have opened wallets uh, for China's new digital yuan as of October. Uh, and after testing the currency across a multitude of regional pilot programs and across the country, the director general of the Digital Currency Institute at the PBOC told Hong Kong's FinTech Week conference there was no official nationwide launch date for the digital currency as of yet. Central banks around the world are looking at central bank digital currencies to modernize their financial systems and ward off competition from cryptocurrencies and potentially private stablecoins. So apparently 1.5 million merchants are able to accept payments uh, and the stablecoin uh, CBDC debate rumbles on. Chad, I want to come to you first on this. Uh, what are your reflections as you hear this story? It's a, it's a pretty big numbers there. Um, what are your reflections on this and CBDC as a whole? Well, um, those are some big numbers. You know, it's um, there's 150 million accounts. It's about $63 per account that has moved or hard to know exactly how much is transacted, but it's definitely a good start for that project. I think it really highlights the need to think about money as a product. And money as a product is a little counterintuitive because we, we're so used to it from the very moment we start our lives that um, it's become ubiquitous. But it's a product. And ultimately, the, the point of the product is to allow the like exchange of goods and services um, and to be able to make decisions over different time horizons, which sounds a little complicated. But basically, uh, you're moving, you're giving energy from one person to another when you move money around. Historically, at least for the last 50 years, that's basically been central banks that do it. And they have been doing it either through physical cash or some uh, kind of electronic money that's moved around. Um, and uh, they've really had the monopoly on it. And um, what's happened because of decentralization and uh, blockchain is there's now a way to deliver 
uh, that product in a totally new way, in a totally different way than it's been done before, where you could now do peer-to-peer electronic, not where it has to be account-to-account electronic. And a lot of people have talked about this. And that's a huge potential shift. And so I think what central banks are grasp, grappling with is, you know, how do they not get caught in the innovator's dilemma of, you know, they're basically the monopolist of money issuance. And um, there's a good reason for that, for um, providing certain types of controls and providing economies of scale, providing simplicity to the marketplace. But w- what do you do when a whole new technology shows up that can fundamentally change the way in which something can be delivered? And I think that's tough because it's not something central banks have had to really deal with, maybe ever, um, you know, in some sense. Um, certainly not in the last 40 or 50 years since they, you know, enabled kind of just simple electronic movement on a count-to-count basis. It's been a very long time. They don't really have that muscle. I think they're trying to think about it and, get, and build it, but it's hard and governments historically aren't great. At, at, you know, rapidly innovating because of the amount of iteration that needs to happen. But the political process really requires a certain level of um, consensus when you do things. And that's not the consensus um, for anyone who's been a startup is, uh, or trying to create new products is actually the opposite of speed. And um, you need to be able to constantly uh, iterate when we're at the stage. So I think CBDCs are so important because they're fundamentally allowing us to offer a product in a different way, uh, offer the central banks to offer a product in a different way, but it's also created private sector competition where it hasn't existed before. Not necessarily in stable coins per se, but for instance in um, you know Bitcoin too, you could even look at it. So lots to unpack around central bank digital currencies. China is pushing it um, in a very specific type of way that's a lot more about um, the Chinese economic model than maybe what we see in the West. And it really makes it a very interesting time to be involved in the debate and part of the industry. Absolutely. Um, I, I love that perspective on you know, China is unique, as it always is, and that probably speaks to, to some of the numbers. And the monopoly on money creation versus um, central bank money, M1, M0, monetary theory, and everything that kind of happens in there, and the role of private banks historically and, and private actors um, and do the merchants create money or, or should it be the, the central banks? Kai, we did an episode uh, some weeks back now on central banks, um, you know, stable coins versus CBDCs. Uh, do you see these things as inherently opposed or complementary um, in, in the future? I think they're absolutely complementary. I think my, my biggest reaction to this news with China is CBDC is very real in China. And I believe they started working on it in 2014, 2015. Reportedly, they have something like 100,000 engineers at the People's Bank of China. And so there is a kind of state capacity and resource and focus and strategy that they've had over many, many years that has led to where they are today to be able to execute on this you know, top-down you know, centralized, you know, planned new payment system versus, you know, other central banks really have only started ramping up uh, their research and exploration of CBDC in the past you know, few years. And I think that's where we're seeing in the rest of the world, it's a much more, you know, bottoms up, open ecosystem of many different actors in the private sector experimenting and building with new technologies to create new 
digital currency and, and payment products. And so I think what's fascinating is to see where do these two pieces collide? The top-down, you know, central bank, you know, how do you design a new form of cash? and a bottom-up open developer ecosystem of what can you do with these new technologies uh, to create you know, better, faster, more efficient forms of digital money, even if they aren't technically backed by a central bank reserve, they may be the same types of, of commercial bank money or other forms of money that emerge. And I think that's such an important point. People often don't realize that the, the dollars, the sterling, the euros in their bank account are not the same as the physical notes and coins they walk around with. Like, this is a different thing that probably got created by a commercial bank at some point, and then that gets sent around and recorded as a as a balance. So, you know, there, we already have a multi-layered system that's not obvious. But Kai, you hit on some points there that I thought was super useful is like, what's the social utility? What's the economic utility? What's the use case for stable coins? Uh, and Chad, I'm interested. I mean, I know Paxos has been involved in some stable coins and has some clients in the space, but I'm interested in like, is this real? Are consumers, are businesses taking advantage of stable coins? And if so, how? Yes and no. Um, it's uh, There's $130 billion that have been tokenized in the space. Um, Tether is the largest, uh, USDC uh, is next. And then ourselves, we, we have both the uh, USDP stable coin as well as the Binance stablecoin, BUSD, we managed the whole thing. It's a marketing uh, co-branding partnership. And then it falls off pretty fast after that. And so there's clearly enough demand that you have $130 billion that's been tokenized. I mean, it's grown tremendously. I think we had maybe $2.2 billion at the beginning of the year. Now we have almost $15 billion. So that's, that's really pretty phenomenal growth. And maybe if you look all the way back to 2019, we had $220 million. So almost nothing. Uh, what's driven that? It's actually the crypto ecosystem that's driven it. And so that's what's interesting is uh, you're tokenizing dollars because you need them to move at the speed of the asset that is it's moving against. And uh, of course, crypto is moving 24 seven, 365 days, nearly instantaneously. Gotta have your money do that. You don't wanna want us to wait three to four days or five days for a wire, especially when it's cross border. The other issue of course is it's just hard to get bank accounts. So um, that is, you know, I think very clear evidence of this creating financial inclusion, even though uh, maybe it's not always recognized as that. Um, most people outside the U.S. can't get a U.S. dollar bank account, and they want one. And it might be because their government's going to devalue what they're doing, but it also could just be because in order to really transact in the crypto space, you need to have some type of tokenized dollars. And uh, But still, at the end of the day, that's really being used mainly for crypto, a little bit for other things. This is um, the Chris Dixon at A16Z point, and I think others have made it as well, is that we're getting this parallel economy where the use cases that support the crypto ecosystem are the ones that are growing. And that's not a bad thing. It's creating a new market. But people are always looking for that real world, quote unquote, use case. Like, how can I use this at the shop? And actually, that's not the point. We've made a new market here that's 24-7, that's global, uh, where other people that were not in, able to use the existing system are able to use it. That has its own risk-reward construct and its own challenges, but it is different. It is something else. And I think you're, you're sort of pointing to that. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, and really, I do think that is showing how there's a new economy that's being developed, but also how the current economy and how current commerce, traditional commerce, will be migrated and what it will look like after that migration happens. So I think what you're seeing is really um, 
some pretty significant steps in the say maybe the more recent weeks. Uh, uh, Facebook Novi launched uh, stablecoin. It's, it's still in a pilot phase, doing remittances between Guatemala and the United States. That is a really clear example. Major company. Um, using stable coins. I think that's the first example of a, of a major company who's not, you know, essentially crypto native accepting stable coins, interestingly. I can tell you from when I look at where we sit in the industry and as an infrastructure firm, it's an interesting perch. I think there's a lot of um, movement around using stable coins for traditional uh, goods and services or even traditional payment mechanisms. It's still nascent, but I think it's going to actually really accelerate. And that'll be one of the key trends of 2022, if you ask me, um, based on what I see. Clearly, crypto is in this um, uh, very accelerated growth phase across the board, large companies coming in. Stablecoins haven't been in there aside from crypto. I think that is going to change, and it's going to change pretty aggressively. And I think that will be the linchpin that really pulls the rest of the economy into a blockchain-enabled system. And that's really our view of what happens, that you, you get to a point where you can replatform the financial system. That's the nature of the innovator's dilemma. It always comes bottom up and it always starts at the edges. If you think about who the first customer of Stripe was, it wasn't the biggest customers in the world, but they're a pretty big company. Uh, and so the things tend to get dismissed when they start at the fringes. And yet we've seen this movie a, a couple of times. Yeah, I'd say that you know, it's exciting that stablecoins give an opportunity to really identify where payments are the most broken. And I think that's where the early demand has been in, in things like, you know, cross-border, you know, B2B payments between, you know, two small crypto native firms, neither of which, you know, are able to get local bank accounts. You know, that's a real problem that stablecoins solve, that now you can raise money, you can hold your corporate treasury, you could pay employees, you could pay vendors, and you could do so, you know, as a small, you know, startup, you know, that is halfway across the world without access to traditional dollar-based banking. Uh, and I think that there's a long way to go with some of these, you know, new use cases, uh, things like DeFi, things like NFTs, before we're going to see consumers, you know, start to use stablecoins to to buy their coffee. And I think you have to ask, what problem does it solve? You know, if you're able to buy your coffee perfectly fine today with existing payment methods, you know, what is going to be that incentive and that reason? why consumers start to shift you know, to a new form factor versus all of the new problems that you can solve with new technologies like B2B payments, like cross-border, like remittances. And I think it's, it's clear that's what stablecoins are, are doing today. Okay, well, let's keep watching this one. And speaking of some of those use cases, uh, Chipper Cash uh, has got a $2 billion valuation with a $150 million extension led by FTX. So Chipper Cash is an African uh, cross-border payments company and neobank and somewhat fintech super app. They offer all kinds of stuff like shares and um, and, and goodness what else. Um, this round was led by exchange platform FTX and it comes six months after it closed its Series C led by SVB Capital. The total Series C stands at 250 million, but its funding to date is over 305. Um, Chipper Cash is now a unicorn uh, as this extension takes the valuation above 2 billion. Founded in 2018 to offer a no-fee peer-to-peer cross-border payment system in Africa. Um, and this year, Chipper Cash opened some corridors to both the UK and the US. Of course, they're live across many of the key African markets like Nigeria, Kenya, Uganda, and, and many, many more. 
So this is um, a big month for Chipper Cash, Kai. You were talking about use cases there. Um, this feels like fintech at the front, DeFi at the back. Is uh, where are they going with this? What's the what's the what's the back end of this look like? I think first, just an amazing company and a fantastic team that has been you know executing for for many years now. Uh, and and I think crypto you know is absolutely you know something that that they've been uh, pretty excited about, and and it's not. A surprise to to see FTX uh, really you know identify and recognize the role that that Chipper Cash you know could play in being a mainstream you know fintech neo bank uh, product that could potentially leverage crypto rails you know and stable coins on the back end you know for use cases like remittances and so you know it I I believe it's still pretty early for some of their their overall you know crypto products and plans uh, but I think we're seeing you know particularly fintechs and neobanks focused on emerging markets have crypto features I'd say earlier and earlier on their roadmap versus you know other neobanks that are you know in developed markets you know waiting until you know they've executed uh, on a lot of other initiatives before bringing crypto in so I think there's a huge opportunity uh, for them to continue to grow their presence you know, in the region and facilitate remittances and b2b payments and and all different types of use cases on crypto rails in areas where the financial infrastructure you know isn't as developed. Yeah, indeed. Uh, a few weeks ago, we actually had the uh, VP of Global Marketing at Chipper Cash on Fintech Insider, and they mentioned that uh, they're super excited by some of the new markets, but they're also going to use some of this funding to improve call reliability across the continent and deeper their partnership with regulators and reduce the cost of sending money anywhere. So you could see how from that statement, stable coins and crypto and uh, could, could be a, a big part of that. There's also another piece here where they have worked, uh, they said, with Chainalysis to identify that crypto adoption in Africa has grown more than a thousand percent in the past year alone, in the past 12 months. So that is really, really significant. Chad, what are your thoughts on this as, as you look at it as a use case and you look at Chip Cash? Well, I, I think it's really, really exciting. I think it's maybe one of the more exciting things you could talk about because it's exactly what we've all said that crypto can do, which is to bring financial services, financial products into areas that have historically not had access to them and to bring them into part of a global ecosystem. And um, I think that's what Chipper Cash is doing here. I mean, there's a couple issues that are being addressed. The first is how can you create the right rails and funding mechanisms in less developed countries to be able to move funds into and out of the crypto ecosystem. It's still very difficult to do that. And as you were pointing out just before, you know, it starts in the fringes in some sense. And this is a perfect example of that starting in, you know, smaller economies that are oftentimes forgotten by people like us in the West. And so building a business around that is very valuable. And the fact is, they're able to build that business, um, not just because it's underserved, but because it's creating a value proposition for them that is very meaningful. Yeah, I think you you see this a lot outside of the U.S. where maybe in the U.S. it could be more about speculation or in the West it's more about speculation. Uh, hey, what thing's going to go up? And it's also about community, uh, joining into a community. And in other places, it's about how can this serve my basic financial needs? that we take for granted, you know what I mean? You're just like the Maslow hierarchy of financial needs in places like Africa is totally different from where we're at. And that's, I think, just not well understood. And I think 
to be honest, even in the debate today in the U.S. and certainly like amongst policymakers, there's a real sense, I believe, that they think this idea of financial inclusion and creating wider financial communities uh, amongst the underserved is kind of a story that is used as a mechanism to try and make it sound like this is not a giant bubble. And it's really surprising sometimes to hear that when you're not when you're in the community, you see this, but when you're outside of it, there is a real sense amongst policymakers that this is really about, you know, just any other South Sea type bubble and, you know, pretending that it's going to really create and solve some thorny problems around inclusion is really just a side story. Mm. Yeah, I think that cynicism is legitimate, isn't it, Cohen? Yeah, I was going to say one one comment on this is that it, when you talk to the entrepreneurs building in crypto and, and fintech, and you get a sense of just, you know, the passion and ambition and talent and the developer ecosystems that are emerging around it, you could get a sense that while it's still early and there's a long way to go, you know, that you know, this is providing new infrastructure that enables people to build on top of in ways that they weren't able to before. And I think this is a really interesting trend from a number of the companies that we've talked to uh, in Nigeria, in Uganda, where you'll have entrepreneurs that they start out that they, they want to build a consumer facing, you know, crypto native, you know, neobank or wallet. And then they end up having to build a lot of, you know, infrastructure that's kind of B2B infrastructure that they need to be able to build their neobank and consumer facing product on top of it. And now before they realize it, they've got a you know functional you know consumer facing product that adds value and they've got a whole B2B stack that they're now helping to enable you know other entrepreneurs to build on top of and it all can sit on top of and connect to open public blockchains. And so I think the pace of innovation that's happening and what developers can do is very different when you know the only way to offer a financial product was you know doing a partnership you know with a bank and if you're you know, building in a country like Uganda or Nigeria, it might be difficult you know, to find a lot of banks, uh, particularly U.S. banks, uh, that are willing to, to work with you. Yeah, and I think that partnerships is always key. And that infrastructure point is one, as I've spoken to uh, the founders of Nala, who are a competitor with Chipper Cash, they've said the same thing is that the, the rails just don't exist in many places. But then understanding the local on and off ramps is also really, really key. So much of money in Africa is led by mobile money, which is agent-led. And as of right now, um, most people who have a small import-export business, you know, are, are doing a lot of intra-African trade. Something like forty percent of cross-border remittances are around that intra-African trade, goods and services moving in to be sold at a local market. So I have to go to an agent, give them my cash in order to send mobile money into another country at an eight, seven, eight percent fee, which. Can could be really significant to my business. And there's a lot of friction in that process. Another rail would help, but actually getting that last mile adoption with the agents and the on-off ramps really right requires some that local market understanding to, to really make a difference. Alrighty, well, we are just gonna take a quick pause here while we hear from our sponsors and we'll be back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibility, and Visa is helping everyone take part. Visa enables commerce across their network and crypto networks through solutions like FinTech FastTrack, a quick and easy way for crypto innovators to issue payment credentials. 
Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. Welcome back. For the second half of the show, we're starting off with Goldman Sachs Taps Digital Asset Company to build an open platform for tokenized assets. So Digital Asset, which is a leading software and services provider, helping enterprises build economic value through interconnected networks, announced that Goldman Sachs will use DAML, Digital Assets Core Technology, to develop its end-to-end tokenized asset infrastructure. Chad, you are building in the tokenized security space. You've been a major innovator here. I am a complete beginner. What does this mean? What is happening with tokenized securities? Can you help unpack this for us? We spent a lot of time looking at this. We've been settling live U.S. equities trades between Bank of America, Credit Suisse, SockGen, Instanet, uh, some other firms that are coming on as well, probably, you know, something like another half dozen. And we've um, put ourselves in a position to file for a clearing agency. There's only two of those in the U.S. right now, the OCC and the DTC. And so um, that would, you know, really add to our regulatory stack and make us core infrastructure in a different way. Uh, than we've been even with our trust company. But and the reason we're doing that, and I think the reason what's happening is uh, it goes back to what we talked about a little bit earlier. You, you're starting to be able to imagine what could the traditional economy, traditional finance, traditional assets look like if they are replatformed into a blockchain-based environment. And um, you know, I think digital asset and, uh, and the, the programming language DAML is really great because the idea is that it allows you to be able to just actively program and develop a whole suite of products very quickly. And when you're a legacy financial institution, you know, there's, you have a lot of things that you're trying to innovate on and build on and, and shift around and just be able to operate in a common language that anybody else might be operating in means that you can start to do things in a way, in a, in a single state that you couldn't before. And so um, really, I'm just validating the concept that the way the financial system works now, which is a lot of messaging back and forth, is very cumbersome because it ends up being batched messages and end of day processes. And some people might not even realize this. It's just so unbelievably arcane and old, and it's running generally on COBOL mainframes. And so the idea that let's take a step forward out of that and actually a giant leap forward out of that into something that is completely modern and different with uh, um, DAML or any other type of tokenization mechanism is just more validation that I think what you're facing is how can you create products for your customers for the world that they're in today, not the world of yesterday uh, or the world of 20 years ago or 30 years ago. People don't want to have the type of financial uh, products uh, that exist now as their main means of interacting with somebody else. It just doesn't make sense. You know, you're ordering toilet paper in a day, in a couple hours, uh, you're settling stocks in days, you're settling securities in days. It doesn't make sense. You know, if you want their money, they want to be able to move it around. They don't care that it's blockchain. It's just that blockchain enables this. And when you think about securities, just U.S. equities alone is $50 trillion. There's, I think, $100 trillion of securities, not real estate or anything else in the U.S. That's an enormous market that hasn't really been addressed and adjusted in a very long time because the network effects were just so hard to overcome. 
you finally got to the point where technology is overwhelming the network effects of all of the old processes. And one of them is, uh, is DAML here. And um, I think it's, you know, Goldman's obviously always a leader in these things. And Matt McDermott, who runs that group, is really a very, very smart guy, very thoughtful. And um, I think this is just validation that you have to be thinking about how are you going to offer products for your customers based on where the world is today, not, you know, kind of the, where the weight of history has been. I love that point. And it speaks to the need for the 24, like the market demand for 24 seven global uh, is just table stakes. And actually the infrastructure was built in a time when we had batch processes with the best technology we had at the time. But there are simple problems like, uh, you know, if you were going to support a stable coin on a lot of bank systems, then they don't have more than three letters for a currency code. So you couldn't have USDP or USDC recorded in there. So I need some kind of bridging technology. And so there's been all kinds of interesting things that happened in the past few years in the enterprise space of crypto and DLT. When you're more regulated, you have a different set of requirements to you know uh, entrepreneurs building in the DeFi space. So at the bottom level, you've seen this openness to using you know Amazon Aurora and Postgres and C equal like sensible centralized platforms that are an upgrade to a mainframe can actually be used and then daml comes along and sits on the top of that digital asset markup language as a software language to allow me to describe business processes but business processes that are orchestrated across multiple participants so imagine if uh, chad kai and simon all run different businesses but we need to do a series of transactions together and i want to start the transaction and kai is going to continue continue it and then Chad's going to continue it. Right now we do that by sending each other messages and then writing our own internal software. DAML allows me to potentially write software that moves a transaction inside of all of our organization on this shared infrastructure. So that can be supremely powerful um, for a lot of organizations that are involved in these intra-company workflows but that have centralized and closed infrastructures to be able to kind of get that done. And if anybody's interested, um, way back on episode 139, uh, we interviewed the CEO of Digital Asset. That was back in uh, the 14th of May, but he does, does give a really good overview of DAML and how it plays together. So yeah, Kai, I think some really interesting moves here. And I think it speaks to this trend of the institutional space taking steps towards crypto and 24-7 and some of its potential benefits and the crypto space increasingly figuring out how it becomes legitimate and regulated. And as a macro trend, that's exciting. Chad, how far are we away here? Like, I feel like I've, I've been hearing about tokenized securities you know, for years now, uh, but recognizing just it, it takes institutions you know, time to adopt you know, new technologies. What types of, of assets or asset classes do you think are going to be tokenized first? And is this something, is it happening now? Are we almost here? Can you give us a, a sense of the, the timelines? I think if the level of regulation means that it's going to take longer in the space than anyone would like. And the reason that's going to happen is you just, like in crypto, where you had uh, unclear regulatory regime, you could just spin up new processes. Developers could just build new businesses and test and iterate and test and iterate. Uh, because securities follow a set of rules and laws, broker-dealer requirements, they have to trade on certain exchanges, it's really hard to move at that type of speed. And there, you know, there's good reasons and bad reasons for uh, all that weight of history. But 
I think just like Sam was pointing out, it's inexorable. The idea that you can't trade stocks 24-7, and I know it's been tried in the past and people don't think there'll necessarily be liquidity, seems unlikely now because you have crypto trading 24-7. You have all kinds of things trading 24-7, and it's really clear that there is a utility to that. And so you have to imagine if you want to maintain your dominance in capital markets over time, you're going to need to be able to um, take spot trading, derivatives trading, whatever it might be, and have it work 24-7, have the entire end-to-end process move. How could you do that in today's world? It's, it's impossible, really. Uh, you need to have dollars on a blockchain. You need to have stable coins or a CBDC something. And you need to have assets and uh, bonds and equities and everything else. And imagine everything else, all assets will end up being on a blockchain. It'll actually look like the DeFi world. You can lend and borrow and trade programmatically. It's you know going to be very disruptive, but also hugely empowering. And it, and one of the most important things that comes out of this, actually, that I've been fascinated about is there. Is, one of the things that's really hard to get around in life is that there are returns to scale. You know, it's kind of unfortunate. You know, people who have more end up getting more uh, because there are returns to scale. It's a it's a real thing. Um, and by making a decentralized system, whether it's for equities or anything else, you can create an ability for everyone to benefit from returns to scale. Whereas today you don't. And I think that is that is maybe the um, most important thing that can come out of what decentralization ends up creating in terms of bringing people into a a very large system where they all can work together and live together and operate together. I, I, I think that's a good way of um, a much more elegant version of we're all going to make it or wag me. But uh, I, I love that articulation. Uh, there's this little piece um, I want to throw at you here, Kai, that's, uh, that is actually from Matt McDermott. Um, actually, no, it's from Jonathan Watkins at the Trade News, who says that the investment bank will use DAML for building multi-party applications that run across new technologies and legacy infrastructure to move tokenization forward, a concept the financial services community sees as creating efficiencies and opportunities for both traditional and illiquid assets. So essentially, if you unpack that, this is a layer I stick over the top of my legacy stuff and the new world to make it look the same. So this is the ultimate off-ramp and, and, and that's kind of exciting. And, and I know we have a few things in the honorable mentions you wanted to get to, Kai, but uh, yeah, I thought that was a, a really interesting story. Yeah, I think speaking of the we're all going to make it, I think over the weekend, I saw a, a new acronym start to emerge on crypto Twitter, which I believe was W-A-G-M-B-T-C. And I'm looking at this saying, what does this mean? And apparently it's we're all going to buy the Constitution. And this is one of the weirdest stories of the year in crypto that is absolutely fascinating. But there's a DAO that's trying to buy a rare print of the U.S. Constitution. So a group of individuals backed by a large community is raising funds you know, to purchase one of these collectible prints. And so you know, this is one of 13 surviving copies of the official edition of the Constitution. And it's going to be on auction at Sotheby's, uh, which I believe is happening this week uh, and set at about $20 million. And so now we have this collective called the Constitution DAO that is raising money in a cryptocurrency Ether to be able to bid at this auction. 
And I believe so far it's been about you know twenty less than twenty four hours, and they've raised over three million dollars. There are thousands of contributors with about uh, I think a medium of three hundred and twenty dollars per person. I'm seeing a lot of Nicolas Cage memes about national Tre- like. What is going on, Simon? I I love your your perspective on this first. I that's a, a very good question in terms of what's really going on here. But uh, I think there's something really interesting about a community full of people that believe in decentralization, believe in community, uh, believe in what that could mean for the world, and then they start to get together and within seven days they form a community of thousands of people they raise three million dollars and they take that to buy something that is culturally significantly about freedom which is a copy of the original uh, u.s constitution document and then a major art house is willing to back that now that could mean we're in a speculative bubble but um packy mccormick at not boring has already done a a great write-up of this and he covered um um, some of the some of the people who uh, had contributed to this three million dollars to to buy the constitution and some of the things that they said are, are really really important. So when I go to uh, participate in this crowdfunding, I get to register with my funding about two hundred and fifty six characters that I believe. Um, so for example, one person said, "This is the dawn of the network state." Another person says for the pursuit of an aligned humanity. Uh, Another person says, as a first generation immigrant, I'm now a proud owner of the US constitution. Um, And uh, the last one was, um, we were once owned, now we are the owners, a black man in America. And really what that speaks to, to me, is the uh, desire to feel a sense of re-ownership of freedom uh, and what the uh, whole crypto movement is about is less technology and much much more meaning and culture and society so to view it simply as a technology movement i think is is to miss a few pieces it is a social movement and one of the most social commerce experiences of seeing everyone's ens name you can see the people who are contributing you're seeing your friends there you're seeing the comments uh, and how quickly it's come together is is really a testament to how the crypto community can organize. Uh, so, Chad, curious, what's your take on this? Do you think they're going to be successful? They've got $3 million today. Are they going to get to $20 million? Will we actually see DAOs become effective in pulling off purchases like these? I hope they're successful. So it would be it would be fantastic for them to get to the uh, the minimum bid number or uh, whatever that uh, the funding price ends up being. Uh, that I, I it's hard for me to know, but I love the idea that DAOs are being able to do this. And you know, there's uh, I think Matt Levine had a great article about this on Bloomberg. Uh, maybe it was last week or so, maybe a week and a half ago, which is you know, in some sense, you know we have a legal system that was set up with certain ways of organizing yourself. And it was organized, you know, a lot of it around corporations. And so then everything kind of looks like a security in some sense when you think from that lens. And so a lot of these things look like corporations, DAOs look like corporations, but they're not. But, you know, you could, you know, if you want to look from a certain point of view, you could try and fit them into that bucket, but I think it would be a real mistake. Um, And in some ways, we actually have another mechanism for understanding organizations like this, which is a mutual 
And so there were mutuals that were set up. And I think it's a lot closer than a, a corporation to describing this. And so you had mutuals like uh, some your banks uh, were set up as mutuals, insurance companies. There still are some like uh, State Farm is a you know nonprofit mutual. Um, so you could set up mutuals. And it's not exactly perfect because it was still set up inside a structure. And this is a little bit different than that. Um, but it's kind of like a programmatic mutual. And, you know, anyone can buy into this DAO and now they can own part of the Constitution. I think that's phenomenal. And, um, and you know, because everything becomes programmatic and you can do things almost frictionlessly because code is allowing it to move without all of the analog nature of how we did things in the past, you can create a whole different system. And this is just a perfect example of that, where you know people can come together, form a community, it can serve a purpose or do something, and you can be part of that. You can be part of a lot of other ones too. And it's not geographically constrained; it's simply constrained by you know your decision to join it. And um, that's awesome. I think that point, Chad, is a good one. Like, I think communities could have got together before and could have tried to buy the constitution, but they didn't. People had all of the pieces of the technology, uh, but they didn't use them. There's something that's happening at this nexus of having wallets, having crypto, uh, and this moment in time. And maybe it's one of those things we look back at as a as a curiosity of a, of a local bubble or something like that. Or maybe it's a signal of something bigger going on, and, and, and that's exciting. We are pushed for time on this week's show, so I'm just going to quickly cover off another story we didn't have time to cover, and then we'll get to our tweet of the week. So um, EA apparently says that NFTs are a part of the future of the games industry. So Electronic Arts has told its investors that, of course, it is an, NFTs are important in the future. Uh, EA is famous for its FIFA football series, which uses card packs to collect players in ultimate team mode. But of course, as anybody who has played one of these games will tell you, that completely resets every 12 months. So no matter how much you spend in that game, you got to start all over again in 12 months. You don't own any of that. So no surprise to see EA reacting, although with where Axie's going lately, um, it should be interesting to see what happens next in that space. Uh, if you do listen to Fintech Insider, there is an episode all about um, football and sports and fintech on the Fintech Insider mainstream. And we did uh, bleed into some of that topic over there with a former 11FS producer, Petra Baricius. Do check that out. And to close it out today, it's time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. If you're listening and you're wondering why we haven't mentioned the ENS airdrop. That's because this week's Twitter of the Week comes from David Hoffman following that ENS airdrop. So he says, raise your hand if you're holding the dollar ENS drop. I choose to bear this responsibility. Interesting. Um, so ENS, if you've not heard of it, is the Ethereum name service. So if you've heard of DNS, the domain name service, this is the service that resolves um, 11fs.com um, to uh, a an IP address. So IP addresses are very hard to remember for humans. So the domain name service came along and allowed human readable addresses. Uh, what ENS does is this for crypto. So you could have um, kaisheffield.eth, uh, chadcascarilla.eth, sytaylor.eth, 
and instead of a really long string of characters that humans can't read. Uh, it does lots of other things around that that's hugely exciting. But one of the things they've done is reward uh, everyone who's been using the service historically with an airdrop of tokens. They simply sent people uh, a token that they made up out of thin air, but have given a lot of thought to. And this meant that people who'd vaguely used the services were getting anywhere between 6000 to 10000 to $20,000. And there are some people that have pulled down six figures in these tokens. Uh, and so uh, raise your hand if you're holding the ENS drop suggests that actually this token is not about uh, the get rich quick magic internet money that's fallen out of the sky. It is about having the equivalent of quote unquote shares or a governance responsibility in the future of internet infrastructure. And I think that's hugely exciting. Um, Kai, uh, Chad, a couple of thoughts on this before we wrap. Yeah, I, I thought this was really, really well designed. And just the experience of, you know, people who have purchased an ENS name before, they could go in to claim it. But to claim it, you actually vote on principles in a constitution that they had. And then you decide which community members you want to delegate your tokens uh, for other decisions that are made. And so it's a fantastic example of you know, this model that you know crypto and Web3 native companies are taking where they want to give ownership and governance over to their most active users. And I think that's just fundamentally different than other applications that we've seen before. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, this is, it's really cool to see governance take, I think, another step forward with this mechanism. Um, that's going to be a lot of what is needed in order to like kind of flesh out what this more decentralized world looks like. And, but increasingly, um, you're getting more and more assets that are natively digital. They're not crypto, but they're natively digital. And what, what that ends up meaning is you're going to want to have some governance mechanisms of what how those assets can move in and out of different structures like this. And uh, that's really cool to see. And I think, you know, we're not all the way there yet in terms of how that can like scale into something that's really usable, um, uh, you know, kind of cross-border basis, et cetera. But it's very, very interesting. Exciting times. If you're interested on fintech brain food this week, I dived into the wallet mechanics and how that worked and what snapshot voting is and all of that good stuff if you want to go down that rabbit hole. All right, that wraps up this week's new show. Thank you so much to all of our guests. Chad, where can people find out more about you and Paxos? Paxos.com is an easy way to do it. Beautiful. And Kai? On Twitter at Kai Sheffield and visa.com slash crypto. And you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or at 11FS.com. Listen, if you've enjoyed this show, remember to subscribe so you don't miss an episode ever. And if you love it, please leave us a review. It helps us out massively and tell all your friends about it too. Uh, thank you so much and we'll see you soon.